Welcome to Cleveland Clinic Cardiac Consult, brought to you by the Seidel and Arnold Miller Family Heart and Vascular Institute at Cleveland Clinic. In each podcast, we aim to provide relevant and helpful information for healthcare professionals involved in cardiac, vascular, and thoracic specialties. Enjoy. Welcome. Welcome to the Cleveland Clinic. I'm Nick Smadira from the Department of Thoracic and Cardiovascular Surgery. And today we're going to talk about the management of chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension and pulmonary emboli. I have a very distinguished panel with me to help walk through the management of these patients. Gustavo Horaci heads our pulmonary hypertension clinic and is an expert in CTEF. My colleague, Michael Tong, is sitting next to him from the Department of Cardiothoracic Surgery and has performed 15 pulmonary thrombo and arterectomy so far in 2019. Next to him is Ehab, Dr. Ehab Hadidin, one of our premier interventional uh, radiologists involved with some of our balloon angioplasty. And the head of vascular medicine, Jerry Bartholomew, will help with the medical management of these patients. So I'd like to start with you, Gus. When you think of the distinguishing between acute pulmonary emboli and chronic pulmonary hypertension, how do you work through those patients in sort of your algorithm of thinking through when you see a patient that may be referred to you for this entity? Yes, there are several factors that uh, play into that decision-making. First and foremost, we like to understand how uh, long the patients have had uh, symptoms. Typically, patients with acute embolic disease will tell us symptoms for a few days. When we hear people uh, complaining of shortness of breath and other symptoms for longer than two weeks, that's when we start thinking there may be a chronic component to it. But at the end of the day, of course, the imaging studies are key. Uh, We have gotten really good at telling apart acute versus chronic thromboembolic disease uh, using particularly CT scans uh, of of the chest. And there are several features on a CAT scan that will point towards acute versus chronic disease. Do you want to to, uh, help guide us through what are some of the two or three things that might make you think that it is more chronic than acute uh, when you look at the CT scan? Um, so from, a, from an imaging standpoint of view, the, uh, just from an anatomical standpoint, how the clot sits in the pulmonary artery is typically one of the biggest characteristic features. So, uh, you know, we talk about, you know, an acute embolus is something that dislodges from, from somewhere else and ends up in the pulmonary artery. So it tends to form a different angle with the wall, whereas a chronic thrombus is something that sits there, tends to integrate and becomes really more fibrotic. So that, that, that angle that it forms really gets lost and it becomes really more one with the wall. Uh, the acute thrombi tends to uh, enlarge the vessel, whereas the chronic, as you look at it very carefully, you actually tend to see a smaller caliber uh, of the vessel. Is there anything in the distal ramifications that when you're looking out in the, the, the first or second order branches of the pulmonary artery that are helpful, or is it mainly that main uh, or low bar that, that guides you? In both. And, uh, you know, the distal branches is, if you look very carefully in the chronic disease, you'll sometimes see the webs, the, the linear filling defects, which you don't see with the acute. Uh, and sometimes you actually see a mixture of both, where you have an acute on a chronic phenomenon. But certainly you have to look at the, the entire distribution of the vasculature. 
So, Jerry, um, if the patient comes in and is kind of indeterminate, whether this is acute or subacute, uh, how do you think through your algorithm of management now with all these different uh, uh, choices for, for uh, treatment in terms of intravenous versus orals? What's, what, what's your approach in the first line for you? Oh, for the management, actual acute management? Or, or they come in and you're not quite sure, is this acute or subacute? But they're stable enough that we don't have to do any uh, uh, urgent intervention. Sure. Well, the great advantage is that now we have the direct oral anticoagulants. And um, if, uh, if, certainly if we think it's more acute, we can put them on a number of any one of the different DOACs, as they're called. And we can still use uh, low molecular heparin and or warfarin, depending on the patient. And we try to look at each patient individually. Uh, do they have any renal disease? Do they have gastrointestinal problems? And that would help determine which of the direct oral anticoagulants we might want to use. And then, I obviously, I question the patient to try and determine uh, how long they've had symptoms. I also like to get old records and uh, old images uh, to look at as well. And then if I'm thinking it's more chronic, I would probably order a echocardiogram, a six-minute walk, and a ventilation a perfusion scan, and then send them over to my colleague over there, Dr. Haresi. I, and I, you know, I don't know the answer to this from, from, as a cardiac surgeon, but if somebody comes into the emergency room with some chest pain, just got off a plane from somewhere a couple days ago, and they get the CT scan, and they've got a pulmonary embolism, their, their SATs are okay. Are they these days admitted to the hospital, or can you put them on a NOAC and send them home without admit, ad, admitting them? Sure. Uh, it's a good question. Uh, can they be sent out? And uh, I think we're starting to learn that, yes, they can be. Uh, many years ago, if you had a DBT or a PE, you were hospitalized for 7 to 10 days. Right, and, right. Uh, we had to convert them to warfarin. Then along came the low molecular weight heparins and uh, injections, and they could go out on those. And now, you know, we have some guidelines that will kind of help us tell, can that patient be discharged? Is he hemodynamically stable, for example? Uh, do they have pain that, has, that cannot be controlled uh, or you need narcotics for? Uh, what are their vital signs? And then you can use biomarkers as well. Those are just a few of the things that one can use. And, and are you suggesting for a team considering or an institution considering this discharge that they develop a, either a care path or an algorithm where they, they look through these specific things, make a decision so it's, it's more or less standardized? Is that Sure, there are online uh, algorithms that you can, can use. Uh, just type in uh, PE or DBT, and if you get to the, a certain algorithm, uh, putting in a, a little uh, a bit of information, uh, you can kind of find out exactly what their needs are and um, if they are um, a good candidate for outpatient. You know, for example, you want to make sure they have access to medication. You can't just give them a prescription and send them to the corner pharmacy, make sure that they have that DOAC, for example. That's one other thing. But, uh, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a different world. So we'll st stick with uh, acute pulmonary embolism for, for the moment, then get into chronic. So let's say now the patient is hemodynamically unstable. We're given multiple bol boluses of... Uh, fluids, they're on increasing doses of inotrope. The echo shows that the RV is quite distended. There's this big uh, embolus in the main and, and uh, lobar PAs. How, Mike, do you decide whether we should go and operate sternotomy? When is ECMO an option for these patients? Or when do we send them to EHAP to do some sort of a, uh, uh, interventional extraction of a cloud? How do you think through the, the, those steps? 
so we have um, we have an entire team called the PER team, PE response team, that um, that helps make that decision. So when a patient arrives to hospital or they're already in a hospital, anywhere in the hospital, and there's suspicion of a PE and it's confirmed by CT, the PER team is activated. And then you have a multidisciplinary team. All of us are our members of the team along with our critical care colleagues and, uh, and other members of the team and pharmacists. And we'll look at that patient, figure out what is the best treatment approach for that patient. Most of the time, it, it is thrombolytic therapy that we're going to be recommending. However, there are patients who are not candidate for thrombolytic therapy for all reasons. And, um, and if they're not candidate, then we figure out between he having myself and others, we figure out what's the best approach, whether mechanical or, or surgical extraction. Um, if we do surgery, if the decision is to go to surgery, then this is uh, done through a median sternotomy. And the advantage of surgery is that we can get a complete extraction of all the clots. And uh, there's a technique that, that we use here where uh, the pulmonary veins will be clamped and will flush from the pulmonary veins through the lungs out from the PA, and it's not enough pressure to, to push out the clot, but when you go in and find the clot and start grabbing the clot, the clot has no integrity when it's acute, but having that backward flow and backward pressure allows the whole clot to come out in one piece, and you get a complete extraction that way, and the, the hemodynamic effect that you see is completely dramatic. There are patients who are not stable enough or who are crashing and burning in front of your eyes, and, um, and those are the patients that will put them on ECMO because that's the fastest way we can stabilize a patient. But ECMO in itself for this group of patients is, uh, is not the end treatment. It's a bridge to something more definitive, either to surgery or if they're not a surgical candidate for any reason, then, then uh, Dr. Haddad here will, um, will uh, take him for mechanical thrombectomy or, um, or catheter-directed lysis. So uh, he had, which uh, there was a, there's a lot of tools and there have been a lot of tools in the armamentarium of of the interventional teams. What are you using now? What do you prefer? How do you um, sort of uh, uh, separate the groups and decide what to do? Yeah. So the um, the biggest distinction is whether you're going to do a pharmacologic and the vascular treatment or some kind of a mechanical treatment. Um, we have the best. It's not necessarily the highest quality data, but certainly the, the clinical trials that have been published that gave us a good algorithm is with the pharmacologic catheter-directed delivery um, of uh, thrombolytics. So uh, we tend to favor that route for patients that have a clot burden where the distribution makes sense to do a catheter-directed lysis for. The patients that can't get thrombolysis uh, can't go to the operating room. Uh, if there's hemodynamic instability, those are the patients that we typically do the uh, uh, mechanical uh, thrombectomy. Um, the endovascular technology has lagged behind, so the catheters aren't really optimized. So uh, it's not quite to the point where I would say every single patient should get this. Um, but if this is a patient that doesn't have very many options, uh, we are able to offer that. Uh, I think having uh, ECMO capabilities here at the clinic uh, buys us an extra safety margin. Uh, margin. There's certain tools that we normally can't use or can't use as safely without ECMO uh, that ECMO allows us to use, but that's the algorithm that we typically follow. So I want to seg segue into the management of the chronic thromboembolic uh, pulmonary hypertension patients, and sometimes I hesitate even adding pulmonary hypertension to the diagnosis because they can come in such a broad spectrum and have other uh, sort of pulmonary disorders. Gus, when you look at these after, with your wealth of experience, how do you think through 
working up and, and assessing patients who might have CTEF? Yeah, so I, I think there are sort of three main patient populations where we need to think about chronic thromboembolic disease. The first one is patients with established pulmonary hypertension where you always have to screen for thromboembolic disease because of the available treatment options that we currently have. And so the screening test of choice for that is the ventilation perfusion lung scan. Uh, and we typically complement that with CT pulmonary angiography or invasive pulmonary angiography. Seems so old-fashioned to use a VQ scan. But we always go back to it because it, uh, in multiple studies, has been shown to be the, the most sensitive test. But also, interestingly, we use it a lot uh, to guide our treatment decisions because when we see big perfusion defects with preserved ventilation, we feel pretty good about revascularizing these patients. So patients with established pulmonary hypertension are, uh, are a big cohort of patients where we really need to think about chronic thromboembolic disease. The, the second uh, cohort of patients is those who survive acute pulmonary embolism. And with availability of these multidisciplinary teams, we also now have these post-PE follow-up clinics where we want to make sure that within three months or so of, uh, of the diagnosis of acute PE, patients go back to normal, the symptoms go away, the right side of the heart, as you were saying, if the right heart is enlarged and dysfunctional, we want to make sure that that goes back to normal. If it doesn't, within, you know, 6 to 12 weeks of anticoagulation, you need to start thinking about chronic thromboembolic disease. And the third one, as you were pointing out, um, we are now seeing an increasing number of patients who have chronic blood clots, shortness of breath without resting pulmonary hypertension, so-called CTED or chronic thromboembolic disease. And so I always tell people that if you have a patient complaining of shortness of breath and after, you know, the usual workup, you end up with no uh, diagnosis, then screening for chronic thromboembolic disease with a ventilation perfusion scan is a good thing to do because even with a normal-looking echo without evidence of pulmonary hypertension, we have seen a lot of patients with uh, symptoms due to chronic thromboembolic disease that, you know, you guys can operate and improve significantly. My experience, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, is it, it tended to be unilateral disease. Is that, am I, was it just a skewed population or is it more commonly a unilateral? No, I think that's a, that's a probably an accurate observation. I think as, as we see more and more of these patients, we're learning more about them, but it is quite interesting to see that a lot of those patients tend to be unilateral disease. Uh, my personal observation is that we have seen also this in, in uh, women uh, and, and obese patients as well. Uh, but I think, you know, that the data and experience is accruing uh, before we can make, you know, more generalized uh, comments about that. So, Mike, it's one of the more challenging cases we do in cardiac surgery, managing somebody with chronic thromboembolic disease. Tell us a bit about what are some of the challenges in the technical and the management aspects of, of this operation? So in the operating room, this is an operation that requires circuitry arrest. And uh, we do this through a median sternotomy. And uh, once we're on bypass, we'll cool the patient down to about 18 degrees. And then we'll, we will go circuitry arrest. And, um, and uh, typically, I start from the left side. The pulmonary artery will be exposed. And uh, we go in, and the key really, uh, as you had taught me, is, is finding the right plane. You got to find the right plane between the scar tissue and the intima of the, of the vessel. And once you find the right plane, then you could carry that dissection down to the smaller and smaller branches. And once you get far enough, the instruments can't physically 
get to, and then at that point you can start pulling on uh, on the the scar, and it comes out like a like a piece of spaghetti. And you would do that for each uh, subsegmental branches, and you come out with with uh, with almost like an octopus like like a piece of scar. And typically, what we'll do is um, start on the on the left side. It takes about 20, 15 to 20 minutes on the left side. Then we'll reperfuse and um, and close the left pulmonary artery, and then go to the right side. And then from the right side, we'll repeat the process, and then we'll rewarm the patient back up. So the the operation in itself um, is uh, is mainly the getting into the right plane so that we can do a complete extraction. Post-operatively, there are um, other considerations to get a good outcome. First of all, we want to make sure we're not hyper-perfusing the lungs afterwards. Often these patients have, um, have a RV dysfunction, and the tendency is to want to put these patients on inotropes. And, and, um, and the key here is we don't want to do that. We would tolerate a lower cardiac index, about 1.8 to 2, just so that the lungs are not being hyperperfused and to, to prevent lung injury. Well, um, in the cases where we, use, we still have some residual pulmonary hypertension, we'll use a pulmonary vasodilator such as uh, uh, esoprostenol, inhaled esoprostenol to, to help bring the pulmonary hypertension down. And then also afterwards, we, we um, have to manage anticoagulation. Um, a lot of, as uh, Jerry had mentioned, a lot of these patients are now coming on DOAX. And uh, whereas before we would postoperatively put all these patients on heparin and Coumadin, and we found a lot of these patients would develop pericardial fusions and pulmonary fusions, and now we just put them on sub-Q heparin, um, and we'll start them on their DOAX on postoperative three, and it's worked very well. They, and um, and with a much so much simpler, yeah, much simpler and a lot less complications. And, and am I accurate? You did, you've done 15. 13 or 15 so far this year? Yeah, we've done about 15 this year. 15, and, and the expectation, as I recall, uh, Gus and, and Mike, the, the operative mortality at Experience Center on all comers should be under 5%, probably under 2.5%. Is that an accurate? Yeah, that's correct. So if you look at the report from the International CTEF Registry, their mortality was 4.7%. Uh, in, in our group right now, our operative mortality is around 3.2%, so it's actually better than the international CTEF registry. And certainly the benchmark, I think, in general, uh, when the latest guidelines were published now about uh, five years ago, they recommended less than 7%, but I think yeah. the field has moved to, you know, if you're going to be doing endarterectomies, your operative mortality needs to be below 5. I would say 5. And a few years ago, we didn't even think about Using balloons to dilate the distal ramification pulmonary artery. Yeah, what's wh where are we at on that? Where do you see that field going? It seems like a, a great opportunity. It's a uh, it's a great opportunity for growth. But uh, I still am fascinated by the fact that I hear you say, "Oh, in about 20 minutes, we're done with the left side," and <laughs> and then we do the right side in another 20 minutes. Because from an endovascular approach, is it's it really is we have a, a lot of ways to go. Um, uh, sometimes it takes 20 minutes to get into that segmental branch to 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 treat it, and uh, um, we're 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 looking at the X-ray, not the actual artery. So we're kind of guessing what the artery is supposed to be. It's there's a there's a role for it. Um, I think there's some anatomical distribution that might favor one technique versus the other. Um, we're still in the early part of uh, our experience in terms of deciding what's the best approach, how often, and how aggressive, and when do you stop? Yeah. For sure. No, those are great points. Well, I want to thank the panelists. I think if I take away 
uh, I guess one important point or a couple important points from the management of acute pulmonary emboli and the PERC team to the management of the complex chronic patients, a dedicated multidisciplinary team of, of physicians that are, are committed to this field, because it is a complex, challenging field on all fronts, is what's necessary really to drive outstanding patient outcomes. Um, so I want to thank you again for spending the time with us today. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. We welcome your comments and feedback. Please contact us at heart at ccf.org. Like what you heard? Please subscribe and share the link on iTunes.